just a warning. This episode may contain language and or topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello. Welcome to episode two of The Veil Between Worlds. I'm your host, Zoe. Although Halloween is over, one of my favorite types of characters to explore around this time of the year is the idea or the concept of the witch. When it comes to witches, many imagine black pointy hats, cloaks, broomsticks, cats as familiars, and sinister, toothy grins that belong to hunched-over little old ladies with a menacing laugh or a cackle, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) Now, I'm fully aware that the depiction of witches throughout history, whether it be literature, film, television, or even yearly Halloween costumes, can be offensive, stereotypical, and 150% incorrect. But those are the depictions that we are presented with in the films I'll be discussing. So please, keep in mind that I am in no way promoting those depictions. I'm simply discussing the films that show witches in that light. However, actual witches, Wiccans and pagans, are nothing like this. They're pretty normal people who lead normal lives that happen to follow religions that, for some reason, still make people uncomfortable. I find them fascinating. But let's get back to the topic at hand. But I love films that revolve around the occult or witchcraft. Whether it's the lighter side, like Hocus Pocus, or Practical Magic, or it's something much darker. I've always been fascinated by the role of the witch in many horror or occult films. Really, magic in general, but for this episode, I'll focus on witches. For this episode, I really want to discuss the darker side of things. And two films that come to mind are The Lords of Salem by Rob Zombie and The Witch by Robert Eggers. Both films are centered around witchcraft in New England. The way that they differ is the witch being an outstanding period piece that takes place in 1630, and the Lords of Salem taking place in actual Salem in modern day with flashbacks to the 1600s. There are some similar elements and themes, though, such as the fact that the accusations of witchcraft and witch trials did take place in New England. The kidnapping and use of children and babies within the films as well, as the devil being depicted as a goat and the use of the goat as a depiction of evil. The Lords of Salem follows Heidi LaRock, 
a recovering drug addict that works as a DJ for a local rock radio station. She becomes the target of old witches in Salem, looking to seek revenge on the descendants of a prominent figure in Salem's history that hunted witches. It's clear from the get-go that something isn't right with Heidi's apartment building, or her landlord for that matter, but you're unsure of exactly what it is. The film was quite psychedelic and surreal at times, which is a unique approach to the depiction of witchcraft and the occult. Set in the modern day, it flashes back to 17th century Salem every now and then. On the other hand, the witch follows a very religious Puritan family that is cast out from their settlement in New England due to a religious dispute. And they then have to make their way all on their own. After the newborn baby, Samuel, goes missing, the family faces a series of tragic events in which witchcraft is suspected to be involved. There have been individual cases here and there throughout the colonies, but many people still don't know much about the Connecticut witch trials and the Hartford witch panic. The Connecticut witch trials actually predate the Salem witch trials by over 40 years. The first known execution in America of someone accused of witchcraft took place in 1647. Elsie Young was a resident of Windsor, Connecticut, and was the wife of a man named John Young. She was accused of witchcraft and hanged in Hartford during the late spring of 1647. Elsie and John had a daughter, Alice, who would also later be accused of witchcraft some 30 years later in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's clear that Alice was not hanged, but her actual punishment is still unknown till this day. Elsie was hanged in the gallows near Meeting House Square in Hartford. This spot is now the site of the old state house. A servant in Connecticut by the name of Mary Johnson was accused in 1646. The accusations against her lasted for years, during which she was tortured and whipped until she finally confessed. She admitted to being a witch, as well as taking part in what is called uncleanness with men. She was hanged, but not before giving birth to a child by a man she was not married to. It is said that Mary Johnson of Wethersfield was executed in 1648 after confessing to entering into a pact with the devil. It was the first confession of this kind in the colonies. Joan and John Carrington, a couple, were both executed in Wethersfield for witchcraft. They were executed in 1651. Many of the accused during this time fled the colony or were exonerated. It was actually really difficult to 
convict someone of being a witch, believe it or not. The last trial was held in 1697. The charges against Winifred Benham of Wallingford and her teenage daughter were dismissed. Even Sarah Spencer of Colchester was found innocent of witchcraft and awarded damages. In 1642, witchcraft was punishable by death in the colonies. Connecticut's laws were based on the laws from England and Massachusetts. They were also tied to biblical scripture from the Old Testament. The Code of 1650 became the law of the colony of Connecticut. Connecticut held 43 witch trial cases and 16 ended in execution. In turn, Salem had 200 accusations of witchcraft and only 19 were executed. So technically this means that the witch trials in Connecticut were more deadly based on the ratio of executions and the number of the accused. Although trial laws were updated in 1715, witchcraft continued to be listed as a capital crime until 1750, when the next printing of laws occurred. John Winthrop Jr., son of John Winthrop, one of the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, became governor of Connecticut and chief magistrate in 1657. He had a hand in stopping several executions for witchcraft and also had a substantial influence on changes to the judicial system at the time. His involvement slowed the number of accusations and convictions of witchcraft and ultimately led to the decline of the Connecticut witch trials. Most of those accused of witchcraft were usually outcasts or people who stood out in the community in some way, shape, or form. To put it bluntly, if your neighbors didn't like you, then you were susceptible to being accused of being a witch. That went for both men and women, although women were targets most often. If someone wanted what you had, what you owned, like livestock, land property, you could have been accused. Being accused of witchcraft was also used as an excuse to explain events that may have occurred. In 1662, Bethia and John Kelly were convinced that the death of their daughter Elizabeth was caused by black magic performed by their neighbor, Goodwife Ayres. Elizabeth had spent time at the Ayres residence and then went home. Goodwife Ayres had then brought a bowl of broth over to the Kelly home the next day and shared it with the young girl. That night, Elizabeth became quite ill. She had been sick for several days at this point and started experiencing stomach pains and delusions. She started to scream that Goodwife Ayres was hurting her. 
Elizabeth's parents needed an explanation for her illness and were convinced that this was the work of the devil. They accused heirs of strangling their daughter with the use of black magic. By the time Elizabeth died, the entire community was aware of the situation involving heirs. The Kellys brought their concerns to the magistrate and local physicians. Due to the physical condition Elizabeth was in at the time of her death, including bruising and blood found in her throat during an autopsy, the community interpreted this as being the work of a witch, none other than Goodwife Ayers. Other girls had started to come forward with accusations about Ayers. There were rumors that she enjoyed telling others stories of her encounters with the devil. In the end, Goodwife Ayers and her husband William abandoned their eight-year-old son left all of their belongings, and abruptly left Hartford, Connecticut. many films, not even just horror films, witches can be seen seeking eternal youth by stealing the soul or essence of a child. You'll see or hear talk of witches boiling or using parts of them to consume or use in some way. Hocus Pocus, Hansel and Gretel, and many more stories about witches throughout film and literature include these elements. However, the accounts of witchcraft practices involving children in the Malleus Maleficarum are quite different from what is generally portrayed in film and literature. The Malleus Maleficarum, which translates to Hammer of the Witches, gives alleged accounts from unknown witches about just what they do with children. The Malleus Maleficarum is a book published in 1486, and it is one of the most well-known books about witches. It details the powers of so-called witches as well as how to conduct witch trials. It was essentially used as a manual for witch hunting. A section of the Malleus Maleficarum reads, that baptized and unbaptized babies were killed in their cribs or right beside their sleeping parents. The babies would be stolen by said witches and they would drink the boiled flesh or make a paste to give them the ability to fly and the ability to shapeshift. I am, of course, paraphrasing. This can, in fact, be seen in the movie The Witch, once the baby Samuel is stolen. In Lancashire, England, in the early 1600s, 
three women were accused of witchcraft. The accusations against them included making a woman dance and fornicate with strange black creatures and suckling the soul out of a baby's navel as it slept. The woman who accused them said the women dug up the baby's body and used its remains to create an ointment that makes you fly. In the Lords of Salem, witches are seen deep in their wooded lair, casting spells, performing a ritual, and calling out for the deity that they worship, which happens to be Satan. And what earthly creature is in attendance? Why, of course, a goat. The witch introduces us to Black Philip, who is quiet for most of the film, though the twins, two of the children in the film, mention that he communicates with them. It's only at the very end of the film that we see that Black Philip is indeed the devil, as he changes shape and form. The use of the goat in association with witchcraft is interesting, since there are no records of anything related to goats in Salem or any other witch trial accounts. Witches having familiars were recorded, and they could, in theory, be any animal, not just cats. Baphomet is an image often associated with the occult, evil, and the devil. Baphomet has even been adopted by Satanists as a symbol as well. In fact, if you want to know more about Satanism or the Satanic Temple, you can check out one of our more recent episodes of my other podcast, Bound by the Cloak. The Sabbatic Goat of Mendes is an idol that the Knights Templar were even accused of worshipping. Baphomet was first mentioned in a letter written in 1098 by Anselm Ribamont in regard to the siege of Antioch during the First Crusade. Most scholars believe that the name Baphomet refers to Muhammad, the founder of Islam. In fact, many Knights Templars started to convert to Islam during the Crusades. The use of goats may simply have an origin of Satan being depicted as a goat. This can be seen in Francisco Goya's mural painting titled Witch's Sabbath, or The Great He-Goat, which depicts witches, young and old, cowering and showing fear in the presence of a goat. Goya's work is seen as a protest to the Spanish Inquisition and witch trial hunting that took place during the 17th century Basque witch trials. What I love most about these two films is the imagery and the mood that they both set. They both present an underlying sense of doom, or darkness, that lies just underneath the surface. They both have unconventional endings that make you feel as though all hope is lost. Let's just say for both of these films, there is no happy ending. 
The closing text of The Witch states that it was inspired by many folklores, fairy tales, and written accounts of historical witchcraft, including journals, diaries, court records, and much of the dialogue comes directly from these period sources. Eggers has said that he spent five years researching material for this film. The film quite accurately and perfectly portrays 17th century life in the colonies. The attention to detail, while still conveying a sense of isolation and a level of uneasiness, makes you feel as though you really are stepping back in time. I don't want to give too much away for either of these films, but after watching them, you'll understand what it means to sign the devil's book. As far as film recommendations go, I feel like they also need to be somewhat unconventional and unique. First up is Hereditary from 2018. If you haven't seen Hereditary, you should. It's Ari Aster's first film, and it's definitely a new classic. It reminds me of Suspiria in the sense that you have no idea what's going to happen as the film goes on. It gives nothing away. Everything comes together in the end, and it's quite beautiful and horrifying at the same time. You need to see the entire movie to get it, though. Hereditary is also a great film that deals with grief. And Toni Collette is amazing in this film as she plays a mother that suffers the loss of her own mother, as well as future tragedy that takes place during the film. 1977's Suspiria is naturally another recommendation due to its atypical ideas about witchcraft. It's just one in a series of three films by Italian director Dario Argento that revolves around witches known as the Three Mothers. It's a beautiful film, it's iconic, and it's one of the most influential horror films of all time for several reasons. All the leading roles in the film are female, which is quite unique for a horror film from the 70s. The use of color and dramatic camera angles gives it a unique level of depth as you delve into the world of a dance school set in Germany during the 1970s. The music is also an important element in this film. I don't want to give too much about Suspiria away either, so you'll just have to watch it. It's one of the best Blu-ray versions of a film I've ever seen. Pie Wacket is a great film from 2017, and it revolves around a teenager who has an interest in magic and the occult, and she calls on a not-so-nice spirit after an argument with her mother. And things don't go so well. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Veil Between Worlds. We'll be back with a brand new episode next month, so be prepared for something that's sure to bring you holiday cheer or maybe terror. 
Actually, Holiday Terror sounds more appropriate. 